0: Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex. And hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, BorderLex. In this podcast series, we're metaphorically wielding our magnifying glasses and undertaking a forensic examination of the different strands which make up UK trade policy. And in this episode, our focus is on a topic which, sadly, is as topical today as it's ever been, the question of human rights and how we should conduct trade with countries whose track record in that area leaves something to be desired. In the 21st century, international trade has almost universal scope. And the UK, like other developed countries, trades with pretty much every other country on earth, including those with some pretty repressive regimes in charge. To take just one example, China's treatment of its Uyghur minority has triggered widespread condemnation in the House of Commons and elsewhere. But of course, China remains the UK's third biggest trading partner, and the EU has just concluded a new investment agreement with Beijing. So how can we shape international trade in a way which encourages our trading partners to uphold certain basic standards and sanctions them effectively if they don't? To what extent is it realistic to expect that trade policy could be used as a tool for improving human rights standards in other countries? Well, with me today are a panel of experts who have a wealth of experience and expertise in this politically tricky area. I'm joined by Dr. Mattia Di Ubaldo. Research fellow at the University of Sussex Business School and a fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. I'm joined also by Dr. Samantha Valuti reader at the Sussex Law School and an expert on EU law and policy. And also with me is Dr. Jennifer Zirk, Associate Fellow of the International Law Programme at Chatham House. Welcome to all of you. Samantha, if I could start with you. Our focus is on UK trade policy, but of course the UK has only had its own autonomous policy since the 1st of January. Most of our trade agreements in force are sort of effectively inherited from the EU. But when did ethical trade policy become an established thing in the EU? For how long have EU trade agreements included things like chapters on human rights?
1: Well, EU human rights have had an important place in the EU legal framework for quite some time. And the pursuit of human rights, often in conjunction with democracy and the rule of law, have now become a transversal objective of EU external action. And that is particularly the case with one of the EU's reform treaties, the 2009 Treaty of Lisbon, which not only reinforced the EU's external commercial competence, but also, importantly, introduced important provisions to project a stronger normative approach in its international relations. However, human rights have been part and parcel of the negotiation of international agreements well before this important treaty, including agreements having a trade dimension. And specifically, the Human Rights Clause was initially intended as a mechanism allowing the EU to suspend obligations under international agreements in situations of egregious violations of human rights. So the first EU agreements containing an explicit clause in this respect were signed in the 1990s with a number of Latin American and Central and Eastern European countries that were going through political transition. Just to give you some examples, the 1992 agreements with Brazil the Andean Pact countries, the Baltic states, and Albania. But it was only in 1995 that the European community established a policy of systematically including such clauses in all of its new trade agreements. So today, the EU has dozens of bilateral or regional free trade agreements fully or partly implemented, covering roughly a third of the world's regional trade agreements. So with a few exceptions, they are all subject to human rights conditionality. So now the Human Rights Clause has effectively become a staple of EU trade policy.
0: Mattia, the EU really will be looking to include these kinds of human rights chapters in all of its free trade agreements, certainly the ones that it's currently negotiating and moving forward with. It's really become an established part of the sort of free trade agreement environment. Is that a fair comment to make?
2: Oh, yes, for sure. As Samantha's overview has just shown, human rights conditionality is very extensive in new trade policy, not just in trade agreements, but also in other trade policy instruments such as the generalised system of preferences. If you look at the agreements themselves, mentions of human rights have always been there, even in the earlier agreements, although there is a sort of a growing tendency of including more provisions in the later agreements and in particularly those past the Treaty of Lisbon, as Samantha has just said, Another interesting pattern that emerges if you look at sort of the universe of the agreements is that there seems to be a larger number of human rights or, say, politically related clauses in agreements with small partners and also geographically closer countries such as Moldova, Georgia, Ukraine, whereas in the agreements with larger partners or, say, commercially more relevant partners such as Singapore or Vietnam, the number of these politically relevant uh, provisions is a lot lower. So there seems to be, you know, different motives that probably drive negotiations of the EU with closer countries that might, well, maybe in the future also become members of the EU. EU seems to be much more pushing these kind of human rights conditionality, whereas with other partners, commercial interests are probably still the dominant factors when concluding these negotiations.
0: That's an interesting observation. And Jennifer, I think that brings us to perhaps the $64,000 question. How much leverage do these human rights provisions and trade agreements actually give the non-offending party? You know, do these provisions actually have teeth?
3: Well, no, not so much as currently constructed. Just looking at the trade and sustainable development chapters in particular, a fairly significant problem from a human rights compliance and conditionality perspective is their quite limited scope. So, in EU free trade agreements, the human rights that are covered by the trade and labour chapter, for example, are obviously confined to fundamental labour rights. And so, the upshot of this is that there might be a lot more that a trading partner can do about serious and systemic instances of gender discrimination, for example – at work rather than, you know, issues of gender discrimination more broadly. That's just an example to show, you know, how those kind of lacunae can develop. Although it's worth noting as a side observation that it is possible to construct specialised regimes around other kinds of issues. So you start to see trade and gender chapters appearing in Canadian trade agreements, for example, and that's a trend that's certainly worth watching. And a second factor that's relevant to the amount of teeth in these trade agreements as far as human rights compliance is concerned is that disputes that tend to arise under the more specialised regimes that look particularly at things like labour, environmental rights, which have the advantage of being more specialised, tend not to be referred to the more general dispute resolution mechanisms that you see. They tend to be dealt with by way of kind of softer, more dialogue-based kinds of processes that don't tend to lead to very much in the way of sanctions. Although it has to be said that the recently concluded EU-UK trade and cooperation agreement is quite different on this point and we will no doubt come to that. As far as enforcement and monitoring goes, the agreements do set up consultative bodies, which are there to provide information and and views. And these consultative bodies, which are called domestic advisory groups, draw from different kinds of stakeholder groups, such as civil society organisations, business organisations and trade unions. But they don't have a particularly clear role. And many people dismiss them, perhaps unfairly, as a bit of a talking shop, rather than something with any kind of, you know, proper teeth. So there's been some discussion within the EU about how to make these bodies stronger, how we can enhance them in different ways, precisely to give them more teeth, perhaps to give them the ability to launch their own investigations or refer matters to dispute resolution. But to summarise, no, they don't have a great deal of teeth. And it's very rare that things are actually sent to dispute resolution. Although the recent action in relation to South Korea is is possibly, it could be an exception or it could be signs of a new trend of perhaps stronger enforcement. It's perhaps too early to tell. But the recent appointment of a chief enforcement officer for the EU could play an important part in all that.
0: Samantha, human rights provisions have essential element status within the EU's FTAs. I wonder what does that actually mean in practice?
1: The essential elements clause is basically the human rights clause built into EU bilateral agreements, also known as the democracy clause, as it refers to democracy as well, as I will go on to show in a moment, which. Allows parties to either partially or fully suspend an agreement unilaterally in case it is breached. And the Human Rights Clause is based on a very important public international law instrument, that is the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. And in particular, to a specific provision contained in this convention, which is entitled Termination or Suspension of the operation of a treaty as a consequence of its breach. And essentially what this article provides is that when there is a material breach of a bilateral treaty by one of the parties, it entitles the other party to invoke the breach as a ground for terminating the treaty or suspending its operation in whole or in part. And it also gives a definition of material breach of a treaty and makes explicit reference to the violation of a provision considered to be essential to the accomplishment of the object or purpose of the treaty. So we can see that the EU human rights clause builds on international law. And that is a very important point because the EU is always at pains to stress its strict adherence to international law in developing its international trade policy.
0: Mattia, you mentioned earlier about the generalised system of preferences, GSP, which is a kind of a a sort of a generalised concession which the EU and now the UK offers to developing countries. But they do have, as you mentioned, some kind of conditionality attached to them, positive and negative. So how exactly does that work? And what's the balance between the carrot and the stick in that instance, if I can put it that way?
2: You can, definitely. Uh, the general system of preference is the main other trade policy tool whereby human rights conditionality is, is pursued and possibly more actively pursued by the EU. And to understand how this differs relative to trade agreements that we've been discussing so far, we have to remember that, as you mentioned, that GSP is a unilateral concession, whereby a donor country say the EU grants unilaterally some benefit in, say, lower tariffs to another country, to stimulate its development, and that this preferential treatment does not extend to substantially all trade which instead happens in trade agreements. So trade agreements are bilateral in the sense that both parties make concession and they involve all trade. So in the GSP, the donor country has much more room to extend, say, this preferential treatment to reward a country on, say, for good behavior on human rights or to revoke that preferential treatment in case of a violation. So the GSP is much more set up as an exchange of access to the EU versus compliance with human rights principles. Now, the GSP+, which is the sub-scheme of the GSP where this is mostly, where this works best, is a particular scheme where a subset of countries can get even better preferential access to the EU if they ratify a list of conventions among which human rights are actually the core convention. Now, these countries can lose this extra preferential treatment in case they violate the convention or they fail to effectively implement them. And you actually monitors these countries periodically. Every two years, they, they have missions to these countries, their reports. So there's both element of positive and negative conditionality that applies to GSP Plus countries. Maybe just to finish off, the negative conditionality in GSP, though, applies to all the members. So not only the GSP plus, but also more standard GSP members or the least developed countries that actually get free access to the EU on everything they ship can lose this preferential treatment in case of violations of conventions that are in the GSP regulation. So this is quite an effective tool to pursue human rights.
1: I wanted to go back to the point of positive and negative conditionality and link it with human rights clauses in bilateral agreements. An important point to be made is the fact that the EU has never suspended trade preferences under bilateral trade agreements containing a human rights clause or a linkage clause to a human rights clause. And the preference of so many countries with a problematic human rights and democracy record among the parties to the EU's trade agreements has been problematic and has raised concerns. But I think we should stress here on the importance of positive and negative conditionality, the fact that it's a common misconception that the primary objective of the clause is to enable the EU to place sanctions on its partners by blocking their enhanced access to its market as granted by the agreement, we should stress that actually the clause is a way for the EU to address human rights issues with its partners in various other and more constructive ways. And this brings me to the point of so-called positive conditionality. So even though the EU, to some extent, may be criticised for not really using the human rights clause as such, The focus should be on the way that the EU intends to establish political dialogue, consultations and other more positive measures to try to improve the human rights situation in the partner country.
3: Samantha's points about the whys of conditionality as well as the how and the what, you know, the why do they do this is really important points to make. Mattia mentioned monitoring and I just wanted to pick up on that. I think there is a lot to be learned from the way the EU goes about monitoring compliance of beneficiary countries with particularly GSP plus eligibility criteria. A really important takeaway from all of this is how different approaches and methodologies can be combined in really interesting and creative ways. So although... That process starts by looking at the reports of UN agencies and the ILO to get a a broad sense of where the problems are. It's recognized that there are significant gaps between what these kinds of reports say and what's really happening on the ground. You have to go deeper than that. So a really important part of the monitoring process is the in-country work, where representatives of the commission will go and speak to officials, to business organizations, to stakeholders, to ministries to get a really good sense of what. What's going on on the ground?
0: So we've spoken a lot about the concessions made to developing countries in particular. But of course, the agreement between the EU and the UK, the trade and cooperation agreement, also has references to human rights. Now, we don't usually associate human rights violations with countries in Europe that are our neighbours, but there are 17 individual references to human rights in that agreement. And I know because I counted them myself. I just wonder what provisions are there and, you know, what are they trying to achieve and how binding are they on the relationship between the UK and the EU? What's their implication?
1: First of all, I think it's a bit of a challenge to try and summarize the complexity of these human rights conditionality provisions in the trade and cooperation agreement. However, we can clearly identify categories of human rights provisions. So we can identify general rules on human rights conditionality, which apply to the whole trade and cooperation agreement. We then have a specific set of provisions for uh, criminal law. And then we have a separate chapter on social and labour rights, and then on data protection law. So if we start with the general rules on human rights conditionality, which apply to the whole of the TCA, we can see that the provisions allow for the termination or suspension, also in part on human rights grounds of this agreement. it's important to stress that this is not automatic and it is subject to a fairly high threshold. If we look at the human rights conditionality provisions for law enforcement, and so specifically for criminal law, we see that there's a special form of fast track termination. If the UK or a member state denounces the European Convention on Human Rights or some of its protocols. And I think it's worth mentioning that among those protocols is also the one on death penalty. And even in this instance, there's a possibility for suspending the agreement, but not the entire agreement, only the specific part on law enforcement. And I think it's worth mentioning to sort of tie it in with what Jennifer was saying earlier, that there are also separate provisions on social and labour rights. And in this instance, we can identify, we can see that there is a, uh, even here, at a trade and sustainable development kind of chapter. But importantly, there are specific provisions on non-regression.
3: You're quite right. There are 17 references to human rights. I actually thought that wasn't that many, (laughs) given, as Samantha was saying, the complexity of the agreement. But it's good to see references in there. Of course, the number of references that you see to a particular topic like human rights in a trade agreement doesn't necessarily give you a really good sense of exactly how well the agreement and the institutional arrangements around it protect and advance human rights or address human rights related risks because of course any number of the clauses in the agreement could have human rights implications regardless of whether they're framed or understood in those terms and it's only through proper assessment and monitoring that we can really get to grips with that but there are some notable features in that EU UK agreement that are worth mentioning and I'll just mention them really really briefly the one is the unique and fairly robust mechanism for maintaining a level playing field and my goodness didn't we hear a lot about that in the lead up to the deal announcement on Christmas Eve including in respect to social and labor rights with a binding dispute resolution mechanism, possibility of uh, remedial measures. In other words, there's a possibility that reductions in labour standards may result in dispute resolution proceedings possibility of compensatory, retaliatory, rebalancing type remedies, including the reimposition of tariffs. And the agreement also provides for some cross-sector retaliation as well, which is quite interesting. So we've ended up with something quite quite unique in EU FTAs. And people who listen to this podcast and who are interested in Brexit will of course understand the you know the political background to how we've ended up where we are. There's also very interestingly a provision for domestic advisory groups with jurisdiction, if that's the right word, over the implementation of matters affecting the whole agreement and not just the trade and sustainable development chapters. You'll remember me saying that in general, these groups have quite a limited role in relation to specific kinds of rights. It's quite different in the UK-EU agreement. So that's another point of difference and, and curiosity.
0: Okay, I think we're going to have to talk about China at some point, because there is this international outrage about what's happening with the Uyghur minorities in a country which is a major trading partner of both the UK and the EU. Mattia, I wonder what your view is. Do we need to accept that some countries are just too big and too powerful to impose sanctions on?
2: Well, this is a tough question, but it is a sensitive issue. I must admit, sometimes when you look at who has been punished and who has just been investigated or not even that, a suspicion arises that some countries are indeed too important to to mess with, if you allow that expression. The violations in the GSP scheme that have been punished were in Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Myanmar, whereas others have actually reported violations to have happened in Pakistan or Bangladesh not to mention Russia, India, or China more recently. So there seems to be of a bit of a heterogeneous approach of the EU. I mean, we can't really, just, you know, conclude that there is an intention to to select the countries to to punish. But perhaps the focus here should be, as Samantha Bouchanever have said before, on the process that the EU tries to uh, to start with the countries that are suspected to have uh, violated some of these provisions. I mean, the EU always tries to engage with these countries, tries to start a consultation, and only applies the punishment as a last resort mechanism when everything else has failed, and also tries to minimise the economic consequences. I mean, in the case of Cambodia, for instance, the EU did remove preferential market access, but only to some of the products that are exported by the country to minimise the economic cost on the population, which has already other kinds of issues to deal with. So the EU doesn't want to add to that.
0: And of course, on the UK side, Britain from now on has responsibility for managing its own trade policy, its own trade relationships and foreign policy relationships with other countries. And I'm wondering what sort of role you expect the Parliament in Westminster to adopt in terms of monitoring the human rights elements of those agreements? Is the UK likely to be a more ethical player in this respect than the EU has been, or perhaps even, you know, perhaps more lax and more kind of pro-trade, pro-business than the EU has been? I just wonder whether you expect there to be any great difference in the way Britain approaches this compared with the EU now that we're ploughing our own furrow on trade policy.
3: Well, It's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, The role that the Parliament can play going forward depends where the trade bill ends up. It would be a great pity and indeed quite ironic if after all the talk about taking back control of... UK trade policy from unelected bureaucrats that we were to end up with a less transparent system with less scrutiny and weaker accountability than the one that we had before. But anyway I mean as far as the trade bill goes as you will know the Lords made some attempts to insert some provisions into the trade bill which would have significantly enhanced the ability of Parliament to scrutinise trade proposals and which would have included statutory requirements to produce sustainability impact assessments prior to negotiations starting and they were rejected by the government on the grounds that would pose too much of a constraint on the royal prerogative in terms of negotiating and ratifying treaties. So you can see there's some quite difficult trade-offs there around transparency and effective negotiations. But however, there's quite a battle still going on between the Lords and the Commons about what kinds of rules would be desirable and necessary to prevent UK governments from agreeing trade deals with countries that have committed genocide. And those discussions obviously take place against a particular political background, as we've been discussing. I mean, other institutions that are well, obviously, parliamentary select committees have a very important role to play in scrutinising trade agreements and looking at other kinds of institutions. I mean, trade advisory groups that have been set up by the Department of International Trade have a potentially significant role to play in flagging up human rights issues connected with different sectors that might be affected by different kinds of trade interventions. Although these are organised on a sectoral basis so there are questions about the extent to which they can have a like fully cross-cutting role but as we've seen in other contexts these initiatives can rise and can ebb and flow in terms of the amount of influence they have depending on on how different uh, actors and interest groups you know come up and down the political agenda so i would argue that it's really important that these scrutinizing bodies have some kind of statutory standing so that they can't be so easily ditched <laughs> or sidelined
0: So we're moving towards the end of our podcast now, and I'm just wanting to wrap up with a question to each one of you. Do you think that trade policy, are we asking trade policy to do too much heavy lifting here? Can it have a positive effect on you know, fostering democracy, protecting human rights and so on? Or is trade policy actually the wrong policy tool to use for this purpose? Samantha, perhaps we could start with you.
1: There's no straightforward answer to that, really as both Mattia and Jennifer have explained earlier, really very much depends on the partner country uh, with whom the EU is signing an agreement and also on the economic leverage of the country, even in the GSP context. So conditionality, in my view, works in countries that are heavily dependent on EU aid and access to EU trade. Less so, as we mentioned just now, China in countries that are very powerful from an economic perspective.
3: I think trade policy is a pretty blunt instrument for realizing human rights. As a method of enforcing uh, human rights compliance, it, it might sometimes be not just ineffective, but in some cases counterproductive. Um, Mattia mentioned the example of the Cambodia discussion and decision around whether to withdraw trade preferences for Cambodia. And there was a huge debate about whether, you know, against the background of a global pandemic, that was it was the right time, you know, given that the potentially counterproductive effects that it could be having on workers, particularly women workers in Cambodia. So um, there are some difficult dilemmas around how this particular trade policy tool is used. It's quite hard to identify a lot of concrete improvements that can definitely be directly attributed to having some human rights commitments in a trade agreement. But as a platform for engagement between governments on human rights issues and for raising public awareness about the different ways that trade agreements can affect our lives, which can be an empowering discussion to have in itself, I think an ethical trade policy can have a range of very positive effects.
0: Mathia, if you were in charge, how would you organise all of this?
2: Again, the tough questions. I mean, I would like to conclude on a more positive note. I mean, It is true that if you ask me about the existence of any hard evidence about the impact, so a quantitative sense of these provisions on actual human rights indicators in the affected countries, there isn't any. And there are lots of issues on how this is used. However, there are the cases, for instance, of some sanctions that were lifted at some point uh, you know, for Sri Lanka and Myanmar, signaling that possibly the situation has improved, at least compared what led you to sanction these countries in the first place. There's also examples of, for instance, the Enhanced Engagement Framework, which is, again, another recent initiative of the EU to engage with relatively more problematic countries such as Bangladesh, Cambodia, Myanmar, to help them sort of get onto a track that can sort of improve certain problematic situations in their labour laws or in their applications of the international conventions. And in, for example, in the case of Bangladesh, there has been some positive response. In the case of Cambodia, this response wasn't there. That's why the EU went then all the way up to applying some sanctions. But, you know, with all its, uh, its deficiencies and its issues, probably there is still some sense in including these provisions in agreements. And of course, it works where, where the EU has clearly some more leverage.
0: Well, on that relatively positive note, we will have to wrap up our podcast today. So I'd like to say a big thank you to our guests today, to Dr. Mattia Di Ubaldo, to Dr. Samantha Valuti, and to Dr. Jennifer Zirk. And many thanks to all of you for tuning in and listening. So join us again next time for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.